passion is powerful. You find a person who's doing something with passion, you'll see someone who's not easily discouraged. This is a person that's not going to get drawn away or, or casually just, just detoured. Uh, the, the kingdom of God it requires passion. We're in a spiritual war. And, and if we are going to obey the commands of God as, as he is, deserves, as, as he is worthy of, then, then we're going to have to do it with passion. And in this series, we're focusing on the passion of the kingdom of God. And, and the passion of the kingdom of God, again, can be found in what we here at Living Hope call the Disciples' Cross. Five fundamental functions of the Christian life. At the center of that is gather for worship. At the base is the equip for growth. The arms are, are the, the connections. Connect with a group and serve the church and world. And then all of this should build into the, the, the highlight of, of making more disciples. And so we're walking through each one of those as we walk through this series. Today we're going to focus on the passion to gather for worship. And our text helps us understand what is true of all true passionate worshipers. If you've got your Bible, and I hope that you do, let's go now to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, we're going to peek into a, a very pointed conversation that Jesus was having with a woman at the well, a Samaritan woman. And so Grayson's going to read for us. Let's all stand together in honor of God's word. Again, we're in John chapter 4. And uh, we're going to begin, I think, where are we going to begin? In verse 23, that's what I was thinking. Grayson, go ahead and read that for us. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things, Jesus said to her. I who speak to you am He. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen. Amen. Well done, Grace. And if you all would be seated now and pray now for the preaching of God's word. So <clears throat> a little background on this. Um, Jesus and the 12 are now into kind of a foreign land in the midst of Palestine, in the midst of, of Israel. They were headed to Galilee. And rather than doing what, what most traditional Jews would do, which is to circle around Samaria. They went through Samaria. I think we've got a map for you there to kind of see what I'm talking about. You see, uh, they're coming out of Jerusalem. They're going north into Galilee. And you see Samaria there. And typically, the Jews would go around Samaria. But instead, Jesus has led his disciples to go into Samaria. They're in a city called Sychar. And here is where Jesus is having a, a very uh, interesting conversation. What he's doing here is breaking the rules. I know when we read this, we just think, oh, big deal, Jesus, they're in Samaria. What's the big deal? He's talking to a woman at the well in the middle of the day. Uh, why does that matter? Well, it's a big deal. First of all, talking to a woman, eh, I mean, what, that's, not what, that's not what men would do. Certainly not a rabbi, especially not a woman in the middle of the day at the well. This is obviously a woman of ill repute. Women would typically go and get water in the cool of the day, in, in the morning time. But obviously, this woman was not accepted by the women of her city because of sin. And so she's having to come in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, because she's been rejected by the women of her city because of, of her sinful lifestyle. Jesus is talking to a Samaritan. The Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. The Samaritans were what the Jews called half-breeds. 
when the Assyrians conquered and, and the people of Israel uh, stayed in the land that didn't go uh, into exile, they began to intermarry with non-Jewish peoples and the Samaritan uh, population was created. And so those who are of so-called pure Jewish blood would, would not be accepting of Samaritans. And so there's racism. So, so here you have this woman, you have classism, now we have racism, and now he's asking her for a drink, which is just unheard of, to, to share a vessel. That was absolutely unthinkable. And so here Jesus is, the Son of God in Samaria, a Jew, talking to a woman, a Samaritan, a woman of ill repute, asking for a drink of water, and he turns the conversation to talk about life. And from where we live it. Friends, we're all living our lives from a particular perspective. We all have a perspective that drives our decisions and gives us our sense of identity. And I put this on the screen for you to remind you. What we worship defines who we are and how we see the world. We're all worshipers. We're all made by God to worship. Everybody in this room and everyone you know is worshiping this morning. The real question is, who or what are they worshiping? Everybody's worshiping this morning. The question is, who or what are they worshiping? This woman was living in an identity of shame and a culture of confusion. Uh, bless her heart, she's lived in sin. And that's now her identity. It's how she sees herself. It's how everyone defines her, a woman of ill repute. Sadly, she lives in a culture of confusion. She doesn't believe there's any way to change. She doesn't know of any way to change. That's the nature of the culture she was in. She was in a very religious culture. A culture that says, you, you, if, you've made your, if you've made your bed, you've got to sleep. And if, you, if you've lived in sin, well, now there's consequences. There's nothing that can change that. There's no options for you. You can't undo what's been done. That's the culture she was in. And then here comes Jesus. And he's talking to her about these hard things. How many husbands have you had? The person you're living with now is not your husband. What are you doing with your life? All this was making her obviously very uncomfortable. So go to verses 19 and 20. And so she changes the subject. Oh, I can see that you're a Jew. You know, where you guys worship down there in Jerusalem, that's not what we do here in Samaria. She, she wanted to get into a debate about religious things so she wouldn't have to deal with the personal aspects of her life. It's so interesting to me how people love to talk philosophy, how people love to talk theology, but very few people want to talk about Jesus and his love and his life and who he is and what he's done and how he's alive and how he transforms everything that we are because that's very personal. She wanted to, she wanted to keep things on a surface, theological, philosophical level. And so she brings up the issue of worship. And in so doing, she walked right into the conversation that Jesus wanted to have with her. See, Jesus wanted to talk about worship because remember, I put it on the screen again, what we worship defines who we are and how we see the world. And so Jesus made it real clear that, that a new day had come. This new day with him coming would not be determined, uh, worship would not be determined geography, by, by, by geography. It would be determined about where a person was on this mountain or Jerusalem. True worshipers would be passionate about their worship. And, 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 they, were, and they would do it in the way, because of Christ, and the transformation he brings in the way that they were originally created to experience and to participate in worship. Our text, our text is so helpful. 
It's a conversation, what Jesus told this woman and reveals what is true of all true, passionate worshipers. And so there's three things I I wanna show you in the text today. I would encourage you to write these down and remember them. The first one is this. True, passionate worshipers resist the lure of idolatry. They resist the lure, and it is a lure. There's, there's always something inside of us, that, in our flesh rather, that is drawing us away from the worship of the one true God and luring us into idolatry. And so if you look at the verse, first part of verse 23, he, he sets the stage for what he's saying, and he says, the hour is coming, the hour. What is he talking about here when he says the hour? The time he's talking about in terms of Scripture is the time of the rescue. As you well know, if you've been here for a while, if you're new, this this will be helpful to you to understand the entirety of the Bible. The Bible is a single story in four parts. It's a single story in four parts. Let's say out loud, congregation, what these four parts are. They are creation, So when Jesus says the hour, what he's talking about is the time of the rescue. And, and those who, who experience the rescue of Jesus, we live in, again, it's, it's interesting, I don't have the time to, to go through, but I want you to notice the tenses of these verbs. There's a future tense, there's a present tense, we're going to see, for those who believe, there's a past tense, but that, that we live in the already and the not yet. The kingdom of God is already, but not yet. Remember what Jesus said about the kingdom of God. This is Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The gospel's here. The kingdom is coming. It's at hand. It's not fully here, but, but, it's, but it's arrived. So what does that mean for those of us who believe? The Bible tells citizens of the kingdom of God, because of our faith in Jesus, we are past tense saved. This is Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. The Bible tells us, for by grace you have been saved. Perfect past tense, fully accomplished. Nothing can change it. It's done. It's past. You have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Our sin was fully paid for by Jesus on the cross. When Christ died on the cross, he he took on the full wrath of God that our sin had earned us. And he drank that cup all the way down. So the wrath of God has been satisfied in Jesus Christ. And all who repent of their sin and believe in the sacrifice that Jesus has made, we are past perfect tense saved. But there's more. Those who have repented and believed the gospel, we are now citizens of the kingdom of God. Our, our faith in, because of our faith in Jesus, we are now present tense being saved. We have been saved. We have a righteous standing with God, but now there's a transformation that is taking place. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We are becoming the people God created us to be. 
Our righteous standing is eternal, but our way of life in this world is becoming more and more like Jesus. And the more we become more like Jesus, the more we are free from the power and the, and the, and the pain of sin. And so we are being saved from the power and the, and the pain of sin. We are being transformed. Thirdly, we, we, we shall, future tense, be saved. So we are saved. It's done. It's finished. We have a righteous standing with God. We are being saved as our lives are being transformed into the image of Christ. And we are being more and more liberated from the pain and the power of sin. But there's still another day that is coming. Romans 5, 9 says this. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, again, past tense saved, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. At the restoration, when Jesus returns, all who have repented and believed in the gospel, we will be finally and fully saved. Our, our bodies will be raised, sinless, eternal, no more tears, no more dying, no more pain. Our, our soul, having been made righteous, will be placed in a righteous body, in a righteous world governed by the Almighty. And that is what is to come. We will be fully and finally saved. We are saved, we are being saved, and we shall be saved. When we are saved, we become citizens of the kingdom of God. And as citizens of the kingdom of God, look what, what happens. We are liberated to be true worshipers. Because the hour is coming and is now here. Because Christ has come, because we have been saved by Christ, we no longer have to look at any created thing to define ourselves by. We, we now worship the one true God who has been revealed in Jesus Christ and we are now set free. We, we no longer have to depend on idols we no longer have to be idolaters. What is idolatry? Quick definition, I put it on the screen for you. Idolatry is worshiping any created thing that is not holy and eternal. God alone is holy and eternal. God alone is worthy to be worshiped. All other things will fail and fall short of what your soul needs. Now, this, this woman and her people they were worshiping tradition. They had a tradition and, and they created a system whereby they could be unified sociologically, religiously, and, and it provided some sense of emotional stability in a society that was decaying and falling apart. But they were not worshiping the one true God as Jesus clearly indicates. What they had done is they had fallen into idolatry. Friends, there are so many things that can become idolatrous and we've got to be careful. I, I give you one example, music. Music can become idol. It can be an idol, it can become idolatrous. Years ago, I, I was at a pastor's conference and Matt Redman, this is a long time ago, Matt Redman was leading the, the, the worship and he said, I'm so excited to introduce a brand new worship song. And, and that song was 10,000 Reasons. How many of you guys know 10,000 Reasons? If you were here a few years ago when that song came out, I know you know that song because we didn't stop singing it for months. I, I, it was so moving to me. I was, I, oh, we, we're doing 10,000 Reasons this Sunday, right? Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's good stuff, man. I'm telling you, it's good. See, I had an experience in, in the singing of that song. And when you have a powerful experience in, in the midst of singing a song, that, that song can almost become sacred to you. 
It can almost become a little bit more than it should be. And, and it took a child to wake me up to this fact. Uh, a parent jokingly uh, wrote to me and said, yes, my, my daughter was very concerned because we didn't sing the song we have to sing every single Sunday. We didn't sing that song this morning. I thought, oh no. The song we have to sing, oh no. We're not singing that song anymore, at least not for a while. Because, you know, you don't have to sing any particular song. You don't have to praise in any t particular style. And, and if you do, here's what you need to, and if, that, if you think you do, let me help you understand something. Your worship has become tainted with idolatry. We don't worship things. We're not dependent upon styles. We worship God. See, God desires, this is the scripture, God desires true worshipers that will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. I love the story of Francis Chan. Uh, a pastor uh, was pastoring uh, out on the West Coast. And after the service, uh, a well-meaning uh, member of his congregation came up to him and said, I did not like the music today. And, and Pastor Chan said, well, good thing it wasn't for you. It was for our God. And I am quite certain that everyone who worshiped him in spirit and truth, they worshiped him rightly and the Lord was pleased. One commentator I read uh, wrote this. The father is now seeking by the ministry of his son, by the gift of his spirit, for those who approach him with deeply felt need and true affection in spirit, not in ceremony, in truth, not in hypocritical or heartless profession. So what does that look like? What does that look like to worship in spirit and truth? It, it, it looks like informed intimacy. And that's the second thing I would encourage you to write down and remember. True, passionate worshipers pursue informed intimacy. Informed intimacy. Look what Jesus said in verse 24. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Uh, God is spirit. Now you'll notice, please notice the punctuation on this. They're trying to give us clues here. He, he, the author, what John is talking about here is not the Holy Spirit. He's talking about spirit, a, a, a state of being. And, and so the Greek, whenever I read Greek, I, I hear the voice of Yoda in my head, okay? If you know Star Wars and you know, you know how Yoda talks, that's, that's how Greek works. So it sounds just like Yoda. And so the original, the original Greek says, Pneumahatheos, spirit the God is. That's, that's how I hear it in my head. And, and so spirit, lowercase s, is, is, is speaking to the state of beings. What, what the scripture is saying here is God is not a physical thing. He's a spiritual being. The woman here was thinking of worship all wrong and Jesus was trying to help her. He was trying to help her get her categories right. She was thinking about worship in terms of geography. Jesus was giving her the proper theology and category for God and what it means to worship him rightly. See, God is a spiritual being and so are we. We've been made in the image of God. We are spiritual beings in a physical reality. And because we've been made in the image of God, we have this spirit. To worship God rightly, we must worship him from our being authentically, who we truly are who he has made us to be in Christ. I love 
Dr. Bob Mounts, he was a member of our church uh, for several years. He is the chief editor of the Bible translation we use, the ESV. And here's what he said in his wonderful book, not commentary, a book on the, the Gospel of John. He wrote, nothing short of a genuine personal relationship will meet the requirements of worship in the kingdom of God. Furthermore, this kind of worship must be in full accord with the truth as revealed in and through Jesus Christ. True worship is intimate and informed. It is informed intimacy. And it's always, it's always life-changing. Friends, if you experience the one true God, you will not be the same after that experience. If you truly experience the one true God, you will be changed by that experience. Unfortunately, lots of people will be here physically today, but they won't be changed. And the reason they won't be changed is because they will not worship in spirit and truth. They will not be changed. As a matter of fact, they will be bored. The way we feel about worship tells a lot about us. Those who are bored in worship, I get it. It's how, it's, how, it's how I used to feel about soccer. You know, you guys have heard me talk about soccer. And, I, you know, I give it a hard time. It's a European trash sport. We all know that. But I tell you, I've come to love soccer. I, I, I hate to confess this. It's embarrassing. Don't try to pull my man card. Football's first. Don't get me wrong. But I like soccer. And I want to tell you why. Because there was a point in my daughter's life where she started to love soccer. We got her some little ballet shoes and we took her to ballet and it took all of half a class for her to say, nope. I said, why not? She goes, how do I know if I've done good? What's the score? It's a great question. <laughs> for a pettist, that's a good question. And so we traded in those little ballet shoes for some soccer cleats and she was good. And her daddy liked seeing her get in there and she was passionate about it. And she, she so guess what happened? I started, I started to love soccer and I realized there was a whole lot more going on. See, when you come to the point where you love Jesus and you're worshiping him in spirit and truth, here's what you come to realize. You come to realize there's a whole lot more going on than some prayers and some songs and a, and a speech by a bald guy. You come to realize there's some real action going on. There's spiritual warfare taking place. There's transformation. There's power. There's a lot of things going on. See, when we have an intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that changes who we are. It, it changes how we perceive reality. It, it, it changes what we pursue in life. This relationship with Jesus leads us to God and we see everything from the perspective of who God is according to his word. And it changes our identity. We become those who worship in spirit based on who we are, but also in truth. We have an understanding of the truth according to the word of God. See, the Bible reveals all that is going on in worship spiritually. See, when, when you entered in this place and we began to praise God, there began to be a light, a light in your heart for those of you who believe. And maybe for some of you who do not believe, you began to see the possibility that what, what is being sung and said is maybe true. When the light comes, the darkness flees. And that's what's happening spiritually. There's the power of God that is working and emotionally. 
When, when you know that you are loved by the Almighty, that changes who you are. That emotion of being affirmed by your maker, it makes you different. It gives you an encouragement and a strength to go on. So there's something going on spiritually. There's something going on emotionally and physically. We, we remember our bodies are the temple of God that we are to use to honor him. Not just when we're in this room on the first day of the week, gathered to worship the Lord Almighty, but then we go out into the world. And, and, and this, this reality, this truth of what is happening because we are in a relationship with God, it makes worship exciting. It, it, makes, it makes prayer powerful. It, it makes praise something like a weapon to fight against the things that war against our flesh. It, it makes the truth this glorious light that the word of God says it is. So that by it, we can see our path and we can see uh, our feet and what's going on and, and where we need to be. Once we are saved and informed of the truth, we, we pursue informed intimacy as true, passionate worshipers. And, and that frees us to do something. That frees us up to savor and spread King Jesus' glory. And that's the third thing I would encourage you to write down and remember. True, passionate worshipers, they savor and spread King Jesus' glory. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And, and in and of himself, he has a glory, a glory that is eternal, that is unchanging, and that is life-changing. It's, it's transformative. You look in verse 25, that when the woman... When the woman again wants to go away from this wonderful truth the Lord is, is, is revealing to her about true passionate worship, she says, look at verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. It's very important to understand why she's thinking the way she's thinking. The Samaritans had a very different expectation of Messiah, he who was called Christ, and what he would do and be like. It was very different than what the entirety of the Bible taught. So by this point, the Gospels have not been written. The New Testament has not been written. The, the Word became flesh. Jesus, the Logos, is now standing in front of her. But there has also been given by God the entirety of the Old Testament, but Samaritans did not believe in the whole Old Testament. Samaritans only believed in the Pentateuch. Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Bible. So they didn't believe the prophets. They didn't know the, the truth of the kings and the, and the times. They didn't know about Joshua and the judges. They didn't know Ruth and this story and, and this wonderful scarlet thread that has been taken through Scripture that pointed to Jesus. No, they only believed in these five books. And so when she was thinking Messiah, I don't look it up. I, I just write this verse down and go back and look at it later. Deuteronomy 18, 18. This is all that the, the Samaritans believed. Deuteronomy 18, 18. This is all they thought of the Messiah who is Christ. God said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, speaking to Moses, like Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them and all that I command them. They simply expected the Messiah to be another teacher like Moses. They expected the Messiah to be a, just a sinful human being who would relay to them instructions on how God would have them to live. But then Jesus absolutely destroyed that bad theology in a single statement. 
to, to understand the statement, you have to understand a, a little bit of the Greek here. You have to understand what it looks like. And so I, I want to show it to you. So if you, if you look at, uh, if you go to verse 26, look at the last two words. Are, I who speak to you am he. Now, the way it was originally, the way it is in the original text, it says this, ego I me. Ego, I mean, see what the I am he, I am he. Why is this such a big deal? Jesus was speaking to her in a way that she could understand. Jesus is quoting Exodus. He's quoting Exodus 3.14. You and I know this is the story of the burning bush. When God revealed himself to Moses and in this bush that was not consumed by this fire that says something significant about God. He is, he is, there's a, what they call the aseity of God. Our God needs nothing. He depends on nothing to be. He simply is. And that fire was not dependent upon that bush. So the fire burned, but the bush was not consumed to remind us the God who is. And so if you'll remember what, what God said to Moses out of the bush, I put this on the screen for you. Exodus three fourteen. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Ego, I me, ha'on. So that is the Septuagint. That's the Greek version of the Old Testament. Ego, I me, I am. I have no beginning, I have no end, I am. And somehow, way, the word of God did what God said the word of God would do, that it transformed her life. In this moment, if you look next, what happens next, there's no more question, there's no more debate. She has experienced the one true God. She has come to realize something about reality. God has entered into reality. God was standing before her. God is the Savior. The Savior had come. And, and so what does she do? She savors the Savior. She says to herself, this is truth. And the truth has set her free. And what's the first thing she does? Look at it in the text. What does she do? She goes back to town. And she begins to tell everyone, come and see this person who knows everything about me. Come and see this person who is the savior of the world. Come and hear this truth that will change your life. It has changed me. It will change you. This is the power of worship. It's, it gives us the capacity to see God as he is. And not simply to the extent to which we have seen him up to this point. I, I remember in, in 2004, I was in the midst of my doctoral program and friends, by this time, I, I, I knew Greek and Hebrew. I studied the Bible in, in several languages. I, I had, a, I had a, a master's degree, I had a seminary degree, I had an undergraduate degree. I knew a little bit about the Bible. I knew a, a quite a bit about the gospel. But then something happened. I took this doctoral course and my professor explained Six vantages, six ways of seeing the power of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I thought my brain was going to explode. <laughs> because I had thought of God in two or three of those ways. But there were two or three other ways that the gospel was revealed to me according to the word of God. That changed the way I looked at life. It changed the way I preached you guys that were here, you heard a whole lot about the gospel and you've been hearing a whole lot about the gospel ever since. Not because I didn't believe the gospel before, but because the truth had a way of impacting my life that transformed me. And I could not help but savor my savior 
And I could not help but go and to spread the glory of my king so that others could believe. Friends, let me ask you, have you had that experience with Jesus? Has your way of life been revealed as sinful? And have you turned to Jesus by faith to be saved? If not today, you need to be saved. If you have been saved, let me ask you about your heart for worship. Are you moved? Are you bored? Now, I'll grant you, your speaker's not all that great. The music is. I don't know what your problem is there. But, friends, why? What is happening in your heart? I've been to China. I've been to India. I've, I've worshipped with Muslims in Europe. There's been times I didn't, I didn't know the words that they were singing, but I knew the tune and I sang it in English. I've, I've been in an underground place. I've been in the open air. I've been in a mud hut. The only thing that has ever kept me from worshiping the one true God is the condition of my heart, not my geography, not the forms. Friends, worship is always an issue of the heart. Friends, are you worshiping in spirit and truth? And if not, why not? And what needs to change? What do you need to repent of? What do you need to have renewed in your heart? That is the business I would encourage you to do today. We have care leaders that are going to be able to talk to you after the service. You may just need to come and talk to Jesus as we sing. So let's stand together. Care leaders, if you don't mind, come forward. And I'm, I'm going to pray and, and, uh, and, and we're going to sing. And, and as we're singing, I want to invite you to come and, and pray or talk with one of these leaders about what's going on in your life and what needs to change. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the risen Christ. You are the Messiah promised in the Old Testament and, and you have already come and you have already defeated our greatest enemy, sin and death. And now there is new life in you. And that new life enables us to worship in spirit and truth. But Father, if we're honest, there's some who are here today who can't because they're not saved. And I pray today would be the day of salvation. For God, I also know that there are some who are bored. It's because our hearts are cold towards you. God, revive us. And, and hear the prayers of those who come to pray for a revived church, who pray for their own lives, their families, to be revived in, in the hope of the gospel that we might worship you in spirit and truth. You are worthy, God. You are worthy.